Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst, and I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU. Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in that great state of New Jersey. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, I've got a very interesting interview for you this evening with Tamara Nice, author of a new book called Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. And um, we're going to hear this interview momentarily so that you can hear Tamara describe what this death glitch actually is and what we might do about it. But I'll just say by way of context that a lot of these tech platforms were built by young people. And they were built by young people and designed and architected and conceived by young people who did not have much thought of death in their minds. Uh, It's just not a big part of your everyday awareness when you're in your 20s and early 30s. Usually, you know, for most people I'm talking about. Uh, And so the the architecture of these platforms, as we have seen in other shows, there have been problems uh, that, that result from the, the blind spots or oversight of the people in charge. And in this case, young people designing, let's say, social media platforms for users, not thinking anything about the inevitable death of some percentage of their users, they build these systems without any thought of what might happen if someone died. And that counts as a glitch. That's part of what counts as this death glitch that Tamara Nice is, is writing about. Uh, there are other aspects to it. So that's, that's the frame that I want to uh, go into this interview with. I'm trying to offer to you. Think about how so much of the technology that, that we use and are forced to use comes out of the west coast of the U.S., built by young people for young people, essentially. And that has led to, over the years, uh, a lot of mismatched priorities and some, some awkward and or um, pretty, pretty awful outcomes. We are going to listen to this interview now with Tamara Nice. Uh, if you'd like to join the, in the live listener chat, you can go to WFMU.org. Click playlist and comments. We already have uh, listeners commenting there. And if you're listening in the future, you can access these comments by going to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm, and by clicking the playlist link on the August 28, 2023 show. Let's go ahead and listen now to my interview with Tamara Nice, author of Death Glitch, here on Tectonic. Anise, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. I'm excited to talk to you about your new book, Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. It's published by Yale University Press. And out of all the tech books that I read on this show, almost none of them make any mention of death. 
I mean, maybe for obvious reasons, it's sort of a grim topic. People don't, as, as you quote someone saying in your book, people don't like talking about their own demise. But this is an important aspect of digital technology that really calls out for some study. And you have brought together a lot of research in this book. I wanted to start with this idea of a glitch, this death glitch. You cover this from a, a bunch of different angles, but near the beginning of the book, you write, technologists did not design social media with death in mind, particularly because they were created by and for young people, which I think is a good entry into tech or maybe Silicon Valley culture, creating things by young people, for young people, without a thought of death in their minds. How does Silicon Valley culture pervade the engagement with or, or the ignorance of death in tech products these days? Yeah, it's a, a great question. So I think there's something very odd going on within Silicon Valley technoculture, in part because there's a worship of youth. And you know, if you go to a lot of tech companies, you won't find very many people under, I mean, over the age of 25. Certainly, uh, if you go to any major tech campus, there's still a kind of continuation from the the dorm room aesthetic and lifestyle to the tech campus lifestyle with things like, you know, good snacks and foosball tables and things of that nature, kombucha on tap and all the kind of trappings of dorm life. There's something else, though, that is sort of also on the other spectrum, which is the role of Silicon Valley in thinking of ways to avoid aging and death. And so you have a lot of people who are quite a bit older uh, who maybe feel as though they can find the right mix of technology in order to extend their own lifespans. And that's something that I've been really fascinated by in general is sort of this denial of death within Silicon Valley technoculture. And it does end up permeating the, the technology products that go out in the world. And so not only does Silicon Valley not really want to address death head on and think about it when they're designing things like social media platforms, there is also a kind of pervasive culture of death denial in a, in a much larger sense. I want to start with the first part of that spectrum that you have these companies full of young people that are happily or maybe not so happily designing these social media products with nary a thought of death in, in mind because everyone must be like us, must be young, single urbanites who are interested in posting every moment of their lives to the, the latest social media platform. And then inevitably somebody dies and they have an account on these social media platforms. And then what? We'll get into specific examples. But again, I want to, I want to read a couple of things that you wrote. You, again, going back to this, this idea of a glitch, the death glitch, you write, when death occurs for users and platforms, it becomes a kind of glitch that reveals needs that designers did not originally consider. So obviously the, the platform also can die. We can talk about that. But speaking of how the social media platforms that do continue to exist, how those were originally designed, they didn't have any plan for memorializing 
dead users for a long time. You write that that Twitter, or whatever it's called these days, still did not have a comprehensive memorialization policy as late as 2020. I was surprised by that. It's a real patchwork out there of, of policies, right? Absolutely. And I think especially take, you know, something like Facebook, now Meta. So Facebook as a company was initially created in order to allow college men to rate the attractiveness of their classmates at Harvard. And so you have this thing that was really constructed as a hot or not sort of site and intended for the use uh, of very elite college students. As it became more popular, it really did very unintentionally become a site for memorialization. And so we can't exactly blame Mark Zuckerberg or the other people who are involved with the production of Facebook for not thinking about death from the beginning. But it is very interesting how, you know, users sort of created their own ad hoc memorials and became very deeply attached to the profiles of dead people. And Facebook initially, so what they would do is if you called attention to the fact that somebody had died, then you had to also show an obituary or some other death certificate, something to kind of prove that the person was infected, and they would deactivate the account and take it down. Most of the time, the profiles of the dead just sort of stuck around because most people didn't actually go through that process. But after the Virginia Tech shootings, there was this moment when you know, there was a very high profile case in which a number of young you know, college students died. And so their Facebook profiles sort of became a site for the news media to find information about the victims. And Facebook all of a sudden became sort of part of the vernacular. It was then that Facebook kind of realized, oh, we have to actually deal with this problem of death. It's something that people are starting to actually get agitated around, which is why a number of the sort of classmates and friends and family members of the Virginia Tech shooting victims ended up campaigning Facebook to get them to change their memorialization policy and not delete or deactivate the profiles of their dead loved ones. Even before then, there was some usage of Facebook Uh, as you say, as an online space for people to congregate and remember the dead. I guess it was the Virginia Tech incident that really highlighted it, as you say, in the the press and the media and got Facebook's attention as something they needed to work on. Where are we today, tomorrow, with Facebook and what used to be called Twitter and other social media accounts? I mean, people can have a blogger account of various blogging accounts on different services, What's the state of memorialization and legacy contacts across social media today? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it is quite an eclectic group of policies. And so even now, every platform and service has a different way of dealing with the dead, um, if they have any sort of memorialization policy at all. And with Facebook in particular, so they rolled out a number of different ways of kind of marking dead profiles as being distinct from the profiles of the living so that users would no longer be upset by, you know, being asked to engage with dead loved ones. But 
overall, even with the pandemic, it hasn't completely changed the landscape as much as you would think. With Twitter, there was never any sort of enforced policy, except that on occasion, the company would say, we're going to deactivate all of the inactive accounts as a way to uphold security. And so, you know, the the fear is that if you have inactive accounts, that eventually you're going to have problems with things like impersonation and hacking and spam. And so every once in a while, Twitter would come out and say, oh, we're going to delete the inactive accounts. People would fight back and say, no, don't do that. You're going to delete all the dead people from the internet and we'll miss them. But then when Elon Musk took over and created X in his wake, he actually did start deactivating and deleting the profiles of the dead on Twitter. And so it just shows you how little control users actually have. At the end of the day, whoever is sort of in control of a platform is going to be making that decision ultimately. And that's very different from people who might have their own websites that they're coding. And, you know, it might be their loved ones who are left in charge of preserving that kind of configuration. But at the same time, you know, they probably have to pay money to GoDaddy or another domain registrar. And there's a number of other sort of services and infrastructures that they're still engaging with. And so basically, if you have anything that you really care about on the internet, it's up to you to do a lot of that preservation work. And then when you're gone, it's your loved ones who have to do it for you. Okay, so tomorrow we have just jumped into a new chapter. <laughs> we were... <laughs> We were first in, so re, so listeners know, we were first in um, chapter one is called Social Memorials, which is about the memorialization in major social media services, which, as you say, different companies have different policies. And depending on who's in charge, they can make a decision of, of off the cuff, a decision of the day. And so you have uh, very little control over what happens there. Moving on into the second chapter is called Networked Death. And this talks about, as you say, personal illness blogs that sometimes then turn into a memorial of someone who's deceased, maybe maybe died from a disease or, or otherwise. In these cases, you do have more control because maybe you own the domain and you own an account with an ISP to host the website and you can maintain the, the posts and whatever blogging platform you use. But with the control comes a lot more responsibility of maintenance. What I found really interesting in this chapter, which is a theme that goes across the book, is, as you write, all digital production is collective in some way. So this idea that when we're creating digital artifacts or maintaining them in some way, it's the work of many people together. There's a lot of work that goes into maintaining even a deceased loved one's blog, right? Yes, absolutely. And writing that chapter, I was especially trying to focus from a very sort of um, feminist, ethnographic perspective, looking at the connection between physical caregiving and digital caregiving especially within the context of things like terminal illness, where, you know, the body begins to break down and needs extra support from loved ones, you know, before death actually occurs. And so 
talking to people who were really performing a lot of not just physical caregiving for a loved one with cancer, but also digital caregiving at the same time that then continues on after the person dies. You're right that illness blogs rely on collaboration. If they are to be preserved, archived, or published as a memoir, someone has to do that work. You write about a couple of early illness blogs that were turned into memoirs. There was one in particular I found very interesting, uh, a blog written by a guy named Kevin Foley. This is a blog called Card Blue. Kevin Foley suffered from sarcoma and, and passed away in 2009. But that set of writing he did online in Card Blue lived on. Can you talk about that? Yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, it's really a very beautiful story, too, because his wife, Leanne Cox, um, and I interviewed her as part of the book, um, she engaged with his writing through her own writing. And so they were both writers and kind of writing together in different ways throughout his illness. And then after he died, she maintained the blog and she, you know, would receive emails from former uh, readers of his, from other people who kind of stumbled upon his blog and wanted to reach out. And so his his words and her words really became entwined. Um, she also told me that the very last blog post that he wrote, um, she posted on his behalf, technically while he was still alive, but when he was very close to death. And so she talked about experiencing this very liminal state of widow rehearsal is what she called it, and how much that all of the the feelings that she had around, you know, caregiving and kind of preparing herself for grief and how that intersected with the kind of digital caregiving that she was also enacting. And that was the last post that Kevin had written, right? And then didn't you write about the last post? Well, I should say the the first post that she posted after he passed away. And in the interview, she told you that she had actually written that post before he died. Yeah, she she wrote it before uh, she would. She knew that she would be too grief stricken to actually uh, craft it after the fact. And so that relationship between you know, and I, I cite Abu Farman's work um, in this space, but the idea of terminality being this very strange time when you kind of know that the end is near, but you don't know exactly when the end is coming. And that sort of preparation work that you have to do. And that that really aligns with sort of the all of the, you know, very mundane kinds of tasks that you have to perform either in the immediate aftermath of a death or shortly after when you're trying to arrange for all of the various parts of somebody's life to be given and transferred to somebody else, the sort of terminal diagnosis is this very strange time for a lot of people. And again, really kind of points to the forms of collaboration that take shape when people need extra support and, you know, are really supporting each other through a very difficult process. I get this sense as I read your interviews and, and what you learned. It's like you're just describing 
these people, whether they're whether they have the terminal diagnosis or they're the the loved ones, they're dealing with a lot, and they're just trying to get through the next day or the next hour or the next task. They have so much to deal with, and making money for a giant trillion-dollar corporation is not very high on that list. And yet, on the other side of those technologies are often, they're not always one of the trillion-dollar corporations, but these are typically very wealthy, very powerful Silicon Valley corporations. And again and again, in their decision-making, you see, as you point out, that these companies are making decisions based on profit potential, growth potential. And if something will gain them more growth, more profit, or cut costs in some way, we're going to do that right away. And there's this mismatch between how the sick or grief-stricken family members are having to use the technology in order to get through their day between that and the tech companies themselves that are just saying more growth, more growth, more growth. Absolutely. And I guess that's why I do think there is something beautiful and potentially powerful about the glitch. So I think that that mismatch points to, you know, maybe what say, you know, social media or digital life could be because the way that different users or say workers engage with platforms and find ways around certain workings and affordances of the platform and how they push back is really kind of beautiful from the perspective of companies. So, you know, there is an interesting tension between sort of wanting to deactivate profiles of the dead and not have to deal with, you know, any sort of security headaches that may go along with that or data storage, which is increasingly expensive. Then there's also the aha moment that companies like Facebook had where they realized that the profiles of the dead were actually really good at maintaining people's interest in an aging social network. And that even if the dead themselves were not, you know, doing anything on the platform anymore, posting that prodding people to engage with the profiles of the dead was a sacred ritual that kind of kept people feeling like they wanted to still be on a platform that, you know, certainly younger generations are moving away from. And yeah, I think fundamentally the the problem of sort of coping through through the bureaucracy of dealing with a massive corporate platform is part of the problem. So for morning family members who kind of are viewing a profile or, you know, another sort of digital asset as a sacred remnant of a human being and their shared life. Uh, but from the perspective of the company, it is very much about, you know, liability, avoiding risk, and dealing with it in a very sort of managerial sense. And so one of my favorite examples pointing to the kind of bureaucracy of dealing with digital death at scale is the little caveat that Facebook had on their memorialization page during the pandemic saying that memorialization time would be kind of slow because of basically labor <laughs> shortages because, of course, they employ content moderators to do a lot of the, the back-end work of sorting out who is actually dead and who should, you know, have their profile memorialized or deactivated and um, kind of verifying information. And during the pandemic, 
there were issues with labor in general in terms of finding enough people to perform the labor because <laughs> there were so many people dying. Um, and so it was just this really strange moment of kind of getting a peek into the the labor practices and also the bureaucracy behind managing something like that. And we're back. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Tamara Nice, author of the new book, Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. Hope you're enjoying the interview so far. We're having a good conversation on the comment board which you can take a look at by going to wfmu.org and then clicking on playlist and comments. Another way actually to get to the comment board is to use the WFMU mobile app, uh, which is really well designed. Uh, And that's, you can go to whichever monopolistic app store you choose. You have a wide variety of two monopolies to choose from and um, the app itself is quite good. And there's a, there's a chat button there to see what's going on on the, on the uh, chat board. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Tamara Nice talking about her book, Death Glitch, here on Tectonic on WFMU. You also spend some time talking about small companies, that is to say startup companies. So it's not all about bureaucracy of the Facebooks of the world. In the third chapter, Disrupted Inheritance, you are talking about digital estate planning and mention a lot of the startups, as it turns out, the short-lived, now-dead startups that promised uh, digital estate planning. Just to give listeners an idea... Most people, I think, are familiar with estate planning. What do you do, uh, whether it's through a will or a trust, with assets, the various bank accounts and the house and the car and, and so on after someone passes on. But you list possible digital assets that people are increasingly paying attention to. You write, assets may include PayPal accounts, airline miles, online investment portfolios, commercial domain names, personal websites, email accounts, digital photo albums, or social media profiles, which, of course, we've talked about the social media profiles, but there's this cottage industry that sprang up with venture capital money that said, you see all these digital assets? We're going to hold on to these, whether you or your loved one dies, and we'll be your trusted partner in this. And then the startups died. (laughs) So... How is the digital estate planning industry doing these days and and what happened to get us to this point? Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. So I, I started noticing the emergence of digital estate planning companies around the time uh, that I started my dissertation research or a little bit before, so like 2008, 2009 is when I really started seeing a lot of them pop up, which is funny because when I was watching the Virginia Tech shootings unfold and sort of the the rise of Facebook memorialization, I was sort of wondering what would 
emerge to help platforms like Facebook navigate this space. And I was like, hmm, I wonder if there will be some startup companies that that appear on the scene. And lo and behold, they did. And many of them were quite small. You know, often it would be like one programmer dude like who experienced loss and thought, oh, wow, this is, you know, a problem. Uh, people have to have a, you know, a way of transferring their digital assets to their loved ones if they die. And, you know, there were a lot of different approaches and some of them were like very quirky and would have a cartoon Grim Reaper and kind of try to make death fun. And a few of them got like a substantial amount of backing through things like Y Combinator and they got a lot of press attention. So, you know, if you kind of search for digital estate planning startups, you'll find a ton and they all have like very cheeky names. And Can I just list a couple of these? Death Switch. If I die, that's the name of one of the services. And then you had some more conservative sounding names, Secure Safe, Legacy Locker. A lot of them had Legacy somewhere in the name. Yeah, yeah. And Legacy Locker, so, you know, was one of the the older estate planning companies in this particular ecosystem. And it was very much, you know, the website was more aligned with what you would think a traditional estate planning attorney's website might look like. It was much more about houses and, you know, like children, golden retrievers. and. You mean the images on the site were kids and golden retrievers? Images on the site, yeah. So it was like, it wasn't really focused on the cutesy death angle uh, so much as it was telling people that along with kind of having a will and thinking about their life insurance policy, or having their tangible estate planned out, they should also think about their digital assets. And in 2008, it was definitely still a novel concept. And even though it got a lot of attention, the company itself never you know, really took off. But it's funny because I've seen people kind of reinvent the wheel over the years many, many times. And so there have been various sort of crops of digital estate planning companies that rise and fall. But I would say that during the pandemic, a new wave of companies cropped up and they do seem to have a little bit more staying power. And I do wonder if, you know, the pandemic was a time when a lot of sort of millennials and Gen Zers who hadn't really thought about their long-term, you know, legacies much, maybe we're thinking more about mortality. And so there were a number of startups that were kind of founded by people within that particular demographic. But it is interesting because it's very hard to predict which of these companies would actually be around long enough to oversee the transfer of digital assets from one generation to the next, or even what that would really mean. Because the the fundamental problem is that not only are the startups usually short-lived. And so the likelihood of them actually being able to transfer all of your digital stuff to your you know, kids or grandkids is pretty unlikely. But even the things that they're attempting to transfer may not survive. And so thinking about how many platforms are also fairly precarious or websites or you know, various digital belongings that people have you know, as people think about things like PayPal, certainly, or just, you know, banking 
information. I mean, that is stuff that really should be managed by, you know, an estate planning attorney, somebody who actually knows what they're doing, um, and probably not a startup. Okay, let's talk about chapter four with the interesting sounding title, Haunted Objects. This is a chapter, and it also flows into your conclusion, where you're talking about transhumanism and dreams of immortality of different types, digital immortality. But this idea of haunted objects starts with the idea that smart homes are full of network surveillance gear. Some people call them smart devices. I call them surveillance devices. And they can be hacked. They can be taken over. They can act in weird ways. And even on a good day, they're being controlled or manipulated in various ways from the giant tech companies themselves. So in a way, they're haunted by the ghosts or the spirits of these predatory business models from Silicon Valley. How should listeners, many of whom have these devices in their homes, how should they think about living in a so-called haunted house? Yeah, well, it's funny because it isn't as if tech companies haven't also kind of played up that supernatural aspect of smart devices. And so Amazon did have a particular ad campaign around using Alexa to allow a dead grandmother to read her child a bedtime story by capturing her voice and using a deep fake version essentially to to reproduce it into the future. Which I just find I, I just find so creepy. I, who came up with that? You know what we should do now that we're we've got these surveillance devices, we're listening into kitchen conversations and we're getting them to order more Amazon stuff they probably don't need. You know what we're missing? We're missing the dead grandmother's voice reading a bedtime story to the kid right before they go to bed, hearing their grandmother come out of the speaker. What kind of product manager comes up with that kind of idea? I mean, it's a very good question. And that was sort of the the impetus for writing this chapter is talking to people who were kind of constructing elaborate smart homes and imagining what they might look like far into the future, particularly people with a kind of transhumanist or futurist bent, people who really kind of believe in the transcendent capacity of technology that maybe they will really be able to live on forever in some way. And so looking at people's sort of grand plans for how they thought their perfectly designed smart home would continue on without them versus what happens to them in actuality, which is, you know, that the systems begin to break down in increasingly hilarious and occasionally creepy ways. Okay, okay, let me stop you there because there's a tectonic connection here. One of the past guests, in fact, one of the very first guests ever on Tectonic was Jessamine West. Oh, and Jessamine is quoted in your book, Death Glitch. Now, I did not realize, and I've known Jessamine for a long time, but I did not know that her late father, Tom West, was the subject of Tracy Kidder's The Soul of a New Machine. Jessamine's father had set up a very elaborate smart home configuration that was still active when he died. Can you tell the story? I found it fascinating. Yeah, and so she writes about it in a Medium post titled Death Hacks, which is a play on life hacks, of course. Her father was a pretty well-known 
futurist as well. So he was somebody who was very much inculcated in that Silicon Valley technoculture. And he designed the smart home, you know, all of the lights were automated, the heating system, you know, everything was run in a very particular way. And when he passed away, Jasmine and her uh, sibling were kind of left in charge of it, but they didn't have a manual or any tangible instructions about how to take care of it. And even their father's former handyman, who kind of knew more about the house than anyone, wasn't totally aware of how everything worked. And so without that firsthand knowledge, things just started breaking down. The lights would suddenly turn off. And then on a more sort of mundane level, there was a laptop that eventually just stopped working. And then even his accounts and things. So, you know, not knowing that you have to pay for somebody's Flickr account that can disappear. Also, having her father's old devices meant that she accidentally encountered her father's pornography collection because it was filed under taxes, I believe, on the desktop. So just thinking about how, no matter how carefully you're planning, you're probably not doing it from the perspective of the people who are actually going to be caring for the house and what, you know, what knowledge would need, need to be imparted to them in order for them to do it properly. So just the, the sort of ongoing decay that happens once you construct a smart home, no matter how much you think things are automated. Yeah, I've never been a huge fan of this idea that I need an app on my phone to talk to a server, to go through a configuration, to talk to a router, to talk to the lights, to turn them off. I really, really prefer a light switch just seems simpler to me. But, you know, to each his or her own is what I say, whatever works for you. But I can imagine if you have a whole home full of switches and devices and routers and sensors and speakers and who knows what else, all configured by a variety of different pieces of software, it's amazing that it works day to day when the person is around who knows how it works. These things are so complicated, these systems. So it's no surprise that they degrade. But I think that story of Jessamine's father and that house is a good metaphor for what all of us are building as we use these platforms online. It may not be a physical smart home, but we all have accounts with different platforms. We all use different pieces of software that are configured in different ways. What happens when we die? What do we do with our portfolio or our digital estate, however you want to call it, so that for the loved ones who are left, they don't have to spend a lot of time trying to unravel all of that complexity. I think that is the most compelling argument for the digital estate planning companies that are focused on helping people who are grieving navigate the messiness of things, because the truth is, you know, most people are not going to plan up front. And uh, there are always going to be unexpected and sudden deaths. And so you might just not have everything all together when death happens. So having the ability to hire someone to do that dirty work for you, you know, so you don't have to call the airline, you don't have to call every single account owner for every single app or something, you know, you don't have to go through that corporate bureaucracy and wait on the phone 
or endlessly email. If you could outsource that work to somebody, I do understand why people would see uh, a kind of value in that. Well, maybe as a wrap-up question, Tamara, you can tell the listeners your suggestion. I mean, if there's one thing they should do today to prepare for that eventuality, should they be looking up a death doula who does digital estate planning as well? Or is there one of the estate planning startups that seems to be a good choice? Or what are we supposed to do now? Um, it's, a, it's a very good question. I mean, I haven't done much, which is bad because I, I know that I really should. And I have a kid too. So that means I, I doubly should be doing that. But the person that I've been talking to about doing something is somebody I interviewed in the book. So Megan Yip, who is a mistake planning attorney who actually knows what she's talking about. And Willow Idlewild, I referenced this in, in the book, this uh, your digital estate kind of guidebook that they created intended for people who are, you know, baby boomers, essentially. You're holding up a printed pamphlet. It is a printed pamphlet. <laughs> it actually uses paper, and the title is Your Digital Estate. And there's an older gentleman smiling at an iPad on the cover, if that helps conjure anything for you, dear listeners. But yeah, so I think coming up with a workbook and kind of thinking about actually listing out what all of your accounts are would be step one. Because if I died today... My husband would have no idea what all of my accounts were even, you know, he he's very offline. He's like very Gen X. He had a flip phone until recently. There's no way that he would even know what I'm doing on the internet a lot of the time. A Gen X guy with a flip phone. This guy sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and he's a record collector. So, you know, so we, we have a very analog house in a lot of ways, but I think the first thing you would have to do is just sort of write down what all of your accounts are and kind of give people some sort of clue as to where to find them. Um, using a password manager, things like that can be helpful, but there, as I talked about in the book, there are a lot of issues with trying to directly hand off control of accounts to your next of kin and legally you're not really supposed to do that. And it can get kind of complicated. So I think, yeah, just sort of knowing what accounts are actually valuable to you and what you would want done with them and contemplating your own death in that way is sort of a maybe the the entry point well this book is another good entry point it's called death glitch how techno solutionism fails us in this life and beyond by my guest today tamara niece tamara thanks for doing the many many years of research that it took to get this book out and um thanks for joining us Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. As fun as death can be. And we're back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the remaining 14 minutes of the show, and then the great Dave Mandel comes in with his prog rock show called It's Complicated. And of course, after Dave, we've got the great Dan Boda with Vocal Fry, 
And then Brother Daniel Blumen with his eponymous show from 9 p.m. to 12 midnight Eastern. So you can just stay tuned. Stay tuned, friends. I want to say thanks again to Tamara Nice for speaking with me about her new book, Death Glitch, How Techno Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. If I have time, I want to read out a couple of um, comments from the comment board. But first, I wanted to play an excerpt of a past show, a brief excerpt, which is topical to what we're talking about this evening. You might remember at the beginning of the interview with Tamara, I said something like, very few books that I've read for this show have had to do with death. And I said that because Death Glitch was not the first book on death and technology that I have featured on Tectonic. There was one other. Death Glitch was number two. Uh, there was a book back in 2020, uh, actually exactly three years ago, August 2020. Uh, it was the August 17, 2020 show with Elaine Casket uh, talking about Elaine's book, All the Ghosts in the Machine. This is a book about the afterlife of data and it had a lot to do, had a lot to say about digital estate planning and how people should prepare for uh, their own or, or their loved ones passing. I mean, what should you do with the passwords and the social media accounts and so on? And I just wanted to play you an excerpt of this show. You can listen to this whole show. WFMU makes these archives available for free. It's amazing, amazing resource. If you go to WFMU.org, go into the Tectonic Archives, or you can find this on tectonic.fm, uh, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm, the, again, the August 17, 2020 show. But this is, um, this is the excerpt I want to play for you because this is where Elaine Casket is saying, and yes, her name is Casket. Yes, we talked about that in the interview. Uh, but no, it's, 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 it's spelled slightly differently. But anyway, she's talking about, uh, from her research, what should you do to plan for uh, plan for the inevitable? And uh, let me just let me just play that let me just play that for you now. This is from August 17, 2020. In this discussion of our relationship, such as it is with these platforms, I thought near the end of the book, you made a key point in your referencing of a speaker you saw who, as you say in the book, admonished his audience not to place so much trust in their digital storage devices, saying that people should instead print photos, for example, and just get things out of the internet and off of digital devices if they want to trust that this material, this meaningful material is going to be around. Yep, that's Dr. John Troyer, the Center for Death and Society. He's the director of the Center for Death and Society over here at the University of Bath. And he always says, if there's stuff that is meaningful to you, if there's photos that you want to pass on to future generations, print them out right now. Because basically, it's safer to assume that for anything that is password protected, whether that's your device or whether that's an account or whether that's both, you know, that it's likelier that your estate that your loved ones are not going to be able to get hold of that 
than it is that they are. But I mean, it is no easy matter, for example, to obtain a bunch of family photographs that somebody's stored in their iCloud, for example, if you are not the owner of that account. I periodically curate, which is a useful exercise in an era when we take literally thousands of photographs, to curate those photographs that are most important to us or that commemorate a special event. And I put them in books and I give a book to my daughter and I give a book to somebody else. There's a couple copies of it. I have every faith that my descendants will have a better chance of accessing that than anything I post on social media or anywhere else online today. Hardware fails, data migrates and is lost, companies fail and lock up the stores and the bailiffs come along and take away the servers. By what mechanism is my granddaughter or my great-grandson going to access something that I post on Instagram today? By no mechanism. You know, and maybe that's not important, but in, the, in, in this digital era, we're so aware of all the billions of people in the rest of the world. We're overwhelmed by all of the people that there are, and we look for our own sense of identity and specialness and meaning. And one of the places that we still continue to look for it in is where we came from and our family connections and our kind of family legacies. And if the people who are living now don't do something differently than what they're doing, we're going to be sort of citizens of a kind of like 21st century, early digital dark ages, because all this stuff is going to get lost. Online is not forever. Online is for a while. Online is not forever. Online is for a while. Um, wise words from Elaine Casket there from three years ago. And it fits in, what she said fits in with what Tamara Nice and I were talking about in reference to Death Glitch, which is that this, these, these digital assets, they are not, <laughs> they're not going to be around forever. If you want to hold on to something, again, to echo something Elaine said just there, if you want to hold on to something for the long term, print it out. Get it on physical media. I mean, we saw what happened uh, and read, read Death Glitch to find out what happened with multiple waves of these digital estate planning startups. They all come out promising that they're going to hold on to your data for so many years. Uh, you can trust them to be the, they're, they're going to be your, your trusted advisor, your trusted partner for the long run. And then a year and a half later, they run out of VC and they close down. And sometimes they close down and take customer data with them. <laughs> and that just that just disappears into the void. So the the answer for the most part that I'm taking away from this is if you if you want to hold on to something that's important and it happens to be on the internet or in some sort of digital form uh, find important to make backups, have multiple backups, an offsite backup and all that. This is, there's nothing wrong with having it digitally somewhere, but you should also have a physical copy if it's possible. Print out anything that's on text. Print out photos. I mean, there, there are a lot of places you can print photos into books or make, the, make, make photo albums or print out individual, you know, four by six, whatever. Print them out. And... Uh, and, and for social media posts, I mean, people spend so much time crafting these, these posts on various, um, these toxic social media platforms. If, I mean, think, <laughs> do you really want to hold on to those? Uh, maybe you do. Maybe you spend enough time crafting these things. You want to hold on to them? Print them out. If you don't want to hold on to them, 
maybe we can reevaluate all the time we spend on these social media platforms. If it's nothing that you really want to return to or even pass down to the next generation, why put all that time into it in the first place? Um, from the comment board, Marcy B., herself a past guest from 2021 on Tectonic. You can find that in the archives. Marcy writes, I'm especially interested in what Tamara has to say about digital photo albums. Being a photo manager myself, there's a company called Forever that says it will preserve your photos for 100 years. <laughs> oh, just color me skeptical. A um, hundred, a hundred years. Uh, as I wrote on the comment board, I'd love to see what sort of, how many billions of dollars they've put into escrow to fund that sort of um, wild promise, that wild claim. I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe it. Uh, and let's see, Ken from Hyde Park says, we can set up chat GPT bots that can make social media or comments board messages after we're gone. And of course, Ken's joking about that sort of dystopian scenario where after we're gone, we have AI chatbots making comments for us. But of course, there are those, those uh, initiatives already afoot. You, you heard what we said, um, Tamara and I were talking about the Amazon uh, initiative to, or I guess that they already launched it, to have the dead grandmother's voice come out of the Amazon speaker and read the poor terrified kid just before they're supposed to uh, turn off the light and go to bed the the disembodied dead grandmother reads a bedtime story as somebody said on the comment board that's a great setup for a horror film i mean really you know just to go meta if i can use the word meta anymore uh, a lot of these new big tech product launches each of them could probably be spun out into a horror film i mean there, there's a whole industry just waiting to make the horror films about today's big tech ideas. And uh, uh, let's see. Yes, and that's Ultra Domino says, it was the Ultra Domino, dead grandmother voice telling bedtime stories is the most perfect springboard for a horror movie I've ever heard. Uh, finally, I want to point out that, that um, your digital estate consumer guide that Tamara was talking about, created by, um, co-created by Megan Yip, uh, is linked from the playlist if you'd like to download it. As far as I know, it's a free download. So you can see that. There's also a link to Megan Yip. And finally, I put in a link to this story by Ted Joya from June 6 called Death, a Literary Guide, in which Ted recommends a number of books as his literary reading list for death, stuff like the, um, the Socratic dialogues on Socrates' death and some others. I would just add uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace to that because there, there's an important theme of death um, covered, covered very, very sensitively and well in War and Peace. That's one of my favorite books. But anyway, if you're interested in some, some further reading, go to the playlist. There are novels, there's a consumer guide, and there's, of course, a link to Death Glitch, Tamara Nisa's book. Thanks again to Tamara for being on the show. Thanks to all of you for joining. And um, let's see, what can I tell you? You are listening to the greatest radio station in the world. How about that? WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. I've got a little homework for you before next week. What I'd like you to do is avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Thanks once again to Brother Blumen 
for coming out with yet another great outro tune for us this evening. It's called Feelings on a Screen by Bochum Welt. Stay tuned for the great Dave Mandel. See you next time, everybody. And that's how the fun begins every week right here. This show is called It's Complicated. I am your host for the next hour, Dave Mandel. And I bring you at this time every week an hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. Oh, boy. We're going to start tonight's show with some music from the Spanish-speaking world. I think I have a few I have a few such tracks tonight, but I'm going to start with a group called Espiritu, and I thank my WFMU colleague Wendy Del Formaggio, who does a show on the on the always great drummer stream, 
thank her for, for hipping me to this group. This is a, a group based in Argentina in the 70s. We're going to hear a track from a 1974 LP, Espiritu, and I'm going to, I'll, I'll play a couple of, I'll co- play a couple tracks in a row. That is the first of them. The second one, I'm going to play something from a contemporary or new English group with the, uh, with the rather unwieldy name of Hats Off Gentlemen, It's Adequate. And I'm going to play something from a recent release, 2022 release from that group, Hats Off Gentlemen, It's Adequate. So those two tracks to begin tonight's show and see you on the other side. Me 
Yeah. 